Hello everyone and welcome to the Resilient Sessions, a podcast that brings together injured veterans from Blesma, the limbless veterans charity, and a well-known public figure to share stories of overcoming challenges of all kinds. The podcast provides an opportunity for our guests to chat with one another about their stories, sharing how they overcome their ups and downs so we can learn from them both. We hope you enjoy it. We're joined today by another two very special guests. Steve Swanson is a NASA engineer and astronaut who has flown both shuttle flights in the Soyuz and commanded the International Space Station. He has logged over 195 days in space, completed five spacewalks totaling 28 hours and five minutes and been awarded the NASA Exceptional Achievement Medal. And we're also joined today by Jack Cummings. Jack is a veteran and Blesma member who lost both of his legs while serving in the Royal Engineers in Afghanistan. Since his rehabilitation, Jack has gone on to complete marathons, triathlons and win medals at the Invictus Games. He is also a Making Generation R speaker, inspiring tens of thousands of people with his story of resilience. It's lovely to have you both here. Are you yeah. both, both well? I'm doing great, thank you. Good. I'm great. I'm just just out of shielding, so I'm, I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Now, I'd imagine that most people who end up in space normally have a, a dream, or they grew up wanting to be an astronaut when they were little. Now, you grew up in Idaho, wanting to be a mountaineer. How did you become an astronaut? That's a good question. Uh, I started off, I say, not wanting to be an astronaut. And then as I got a little bit older, say into high school, uh, I realized that that really isn't a career. Right? So you had to do something that, that can get you money. And so I realized that I like science and math. And so I decided to try engineering. And I went down that path of engineering. And so I went to university, got an engineering degree. Uh, didn't do so well my first time through uh, in school. And I had to go back and end up with a master's. But this time I picked a subject that I really liked and it helped me out tremendously. And I did well. So I have to get my master's in computer science. Then it did help. And I, at that point, though, I started thinking about what I really want to do for a career. I know I was a little late in this. A lot of people come up with their ideas, what they want to do in life early on. I wasn't that much of a four thought thinker you know I would just uh, was liking life and having fun and then I decided at this point to then try to go ahead and try to be an astronaut because a job would give me uh, challenge me physically mentally it had adventure excitement I like sci-fi movies and books so it was like to me it was a perfect idea to try for and so I started after my master's about 25 years old and it took about 12 years of work to get to become an astronaut from that point on. Wow. Okay. So 25, you're 25 years old and you've decided, right, that's it. I'm going to be an astronaut. That's pretty amazing. Um, I don't think there's many 25 year olds I know who suddenly decide, decide to do that. But so, so what, how, you know, you, you know that you want to do this. How do you get there? How did you get there? Well, first you figure out well, who you apply for. At first I applied to NASA to be an astronaut. Yeah. And of course I wasn't close to being qualified. And so I get the rejection letter, but they also were nice enough to give me an opportunity to work at NASA. So I took that opportunity wow. and I worked on a wonderful job for me. Actually, it was a shuttle training aircraft, an airborne simulator of the shuttle. And I got to be an engineer and flight engineer and, on, and train astronauts. And, and it was just at operational experience and engineering experience. Got to work in this great field with wonderful people. So it was a 
a really good job for me. And I learned the, uh, the whole business of NASA at that point too. And at the same time I was doing that, I went off and got a PhD in computer science, which helps you because you're competing against uh, these people who have done fantastic things. I mean, there's like the last, I guess, round of applications was 18,000 applications for 12 spots. And so it's a really competitive field and uh so it's difficult so you have to really do uh something on your resume to make you look you know somewhat decent at least and so a phd's operational experience anything else you can get like that uh to make it look like you've uh, i guess done a lot in life and you experienced a lot and you can handle this environment of space if you can do all that then you can get yourself into the last 120 people which gets the interview and once you get the interview you're just kind of down to luck at that point and hopefully they like you at that point and you get you get selected but it's it's our understanding that not only were you working doing this job for NASA, you're also doing a PhD in computer science, and you also had three children and a wife. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, and uh, I'm I, I'm surprised my wife is still with me after that time period too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I put out a word wow. here. How how have you? This is. That's incredible to be able yeah, well, to, to juggle all that. It does take a lot of, you know, family support to get through something like that. And that was very, you know, I appreciate that tremendously. And so you didn't get in the first time round, but it was, so was it the second time round that you got in and what was different about well, this application? I, that's a good question. I think that the first time I was really, I was trying to really think like uh, how to do my best at everything. And like they had an essay you had to write on, on exploration. And I went to this long essay on uh, Lewis and Clark uh, who did the, the uh, uh, in the United States, they went to the Northwest and explored the first uh, settlers of, I guess I would say not indigenous people to explore the area. And it was a big exploration and it did really well. But I wrote this big essay on the whole thing and, and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and then I got to know more, you know, as you go through the process, you understand the process more. And I realized that these people aren't even reading that thing. So mm -hmm. the next time I went through it, I wrote a paragraph and a half about something that didn't matter at all. And it didn't matter. You know, I realized that we, once you relax and understand the process, I think that was the whole idea, just getting to, to understand that process and, and know the people, know what's going on, how it works. And so you can be a little more relaxed, understand okay. what they're really looking for. What was it actually like, you know, uh, being in that interview room? Was there, you know, I can imagine, was there sort of, I don't know, like a crazy setup or is it a fairly mundane, you know? No, process? it was definitely a unique setup. They, they do this to try to just put stress on the uh, person who's being interviewed. And the okay. idea, they make a table, let's say L-shaped, and they put you in the corner so that people are all around your sides and behind you. And you, know, you can ask questions. So you feel like you're definitely getting, you know, grilled with a light in your face, that kind of thing. And they, and they want to give you that feeling that, so they see how you handle the pressure of that situation. And they do ask, you know, some difficult questions. And I can't remember any of them right now, of course. <laughs> but they were more the ones like, you know, in the situation where there's no, there's a no good answer. Like what you do if you have, you know, if you're going to disobey Mission Control's orders or you're going to save the ship, you know, what are you, gonna, you know, those kind of things and, or something along that, at those lines. How do you handle that situation? Those are the kind of questions that I do ask. So. Wow. And was it just a one-off interview or was it a series of sort of tests and interviews that you had to it's a week-long process, but okay. the interview is only one hour, and that's one time. Um, okay. But the week-long is a bunch of medical tests, uh, actually psychological tests, uh, tests on abilities of certain other tasks, stuff like that, uh, all these things that last all week long. So you find out more about your physical state after this, that's for sure. They check to make sure you have all your organs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, you get a colonoscopy, you get everything to make sure you are clean oh, wow. all the way through. Yes. So, Jack, what I really 
you know, want to know is, did you always uh, want to join the military? You know, uh, for me, uh, I joined at the, at the age of 17. It was, uh, my granddad was in, you know, there was a massive family connection. Was it the same for you? Very much so, yeah. So I'll trump you. I actually joined at 16. So um, I got to the end of my GCSEs and um, kind of weighing up my options. I, you know, I could have gone to like six from college and onto uni, had good enough grades. But for me, putting off was uh, the debt, one, and two, studying. I just wasn't a fan of studying. So um, the military was, uh, it runs my family as well. My, my dad spent 42 years in the, in the, the, the British Army in the Royal Signal. So yeah, it, it, I think I was always going to join, but it depended when. But yeah, I, I joined at 16, um, did a year's basic at Harrogate. Uh, it was hard, you know, leaving home at 16, saying goodbye to mum and dad. Um, but yeah, I got, I got, I got through it and uh, I absolutely loved my career. Uh, there was a few regiments that I was able to, uh, after doing the original test, I, could, I had a few avenues. Did you always go? In, you want to go into the engineers, bomb disposal? Or bomb disposal, no. I, I got to the end of my phase two training and uh, they got some parade. So there's like 12 blokes in the course. They got some praying, go, right, lads, uh, postings are in. If you're not going paratrooper, you're not going commando, you've gone bomb disposal because we're short manned and Afghans kicking off. Oh, wow. So uh, two two thirds of the course ended up actually going to EOT because of that. So um, I got put in it, but yeah, I actually loved the job. It was a high adrenaline job and I absolutely loved it. And at sort of 16, were you like this fit fighting machine ready to go, you know, to eventually end no. up in bomb disposal? Not at all, no. Uh, thank, thank God there was a year's basic training because I was in no fit shape. My uh, my section commander back then was a, was a hardcore paratrooper from Free Para and he, he despised me with a passion. He would pick me up for the most minuscule thing like locker inspection, pick me up, right, show break, just because he hated me. But, you know, it was good discipline. You know, you needed that, uh, you know, ingrained in me, you know, to, to pick up my new things when you get out to places like Afghanistan. Um, but yeah, I was nowhere near. <laughs> so he put you on like show parade. So, so show parade is like when you have to go to the guard room at 10 o'clock at night, you know, and uh, yeah, it's the yeah. right mess around. So you're not getting into bed at, at midnight or, and then you're back up at five in the morning. It's quite a, it's done for a reason to sort of zap of, it out. Of course yeah, it is. Yeah. So, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can only look back and laugh basically, yeah. but yeah, um, I wasn't in nowhere near fit shape, but after my training, thank God I was, yeah. <laughs> so thank you. I mean, Steve, kind of on that theme of, of training, you finally ended up on the NASA astronaut program, which is just such a fantastic achievement. You'd clearly been through so much, you know, PhD, three children, a family, and this full-time job. And then you have this new training, but that can't have been easy, well, no, it wasn't easy, but it was also kind of fun in a way. We do two years of basic training for us, and that's uh, just learning the systems of the space shuttle, space station, learning how to do space walks, rendezvous of spaceships in, in space, um, things like that. So there's a ton of things we have to know and learn. So you go through that this, but it is kind of grueling too because it's the same idea. It's classroom simulators, classroom simulators. And so it's, it's like two years of uh, intense school again, over again. But it's actually, you do a lot of bonding with the group you're going through at the same time because anytime you have shared suffering, uh, bonding occurs. So that was kind of fun in a way. So we got to uh, at least get to know each other really well and, uh, you know, study together, all that kind of stuff. But uh, it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, 
I would say it wasn't a lot of fun, but I mean, in a way, but also I like what I was studying. So that always is good for me. If I like it, I, I can handle all sorts of things like that. And that share, I haven't heard that phrase, shared suffering before. And Jack, as you were, as you were saying <laughs> that, Steve, Jack was just nodding his head. So yeah. if, if one if one person the team messes up, the whole team suffers. So yeah, we all know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you guys do the same thing. Like when you get a class, we make a cheat sheet for everybody else. You hand out afterwards, like what was it, what do you need to know were the important parts? And we pass that around every time so we had by the end of it we had all this kind of information for everybody to have so and to keep to keep to study and to be understood to make sure everybody knew what was going on and help everybody through the program so make sure everybody got like, same idea make sure everybody graduated uh, from that yes. because you're actually an astronaut candidate this time you have to finish your basic training to become an astronaut okay so you have to successfully complete those two years before you can become an astronaut yeah so um, I know when you spoke to Hannah, our researcher, you, you said this great phrase called strive for medi mediocrity. <laughs> and that I was just, later. Yeah. So yeah, that was, uh, yeah. So it was during the same time period. Uh, we were starting uh, our second year of this basic training along with uh, what was going on at NASA. And that was when the space uh, station was just starting off and they needed a bunch of people to help work all these different issues they were having come up. So they started taking us and pulling us away a little bit from training. At the same time, you know, we still have to pass our training, but they're pulling us away, making us do other work to try to help out the space station, which is okay. Uh, but they're not giving you, you know, any leeway on your training uh, doing this. And they, and, uh, and they want you to do all these other jobs. End up being that you're just getting pulled all different directions. And so we came up with a term or strive for mediocrity. Just don't fail at anything was the idea. All right. So just be good enough to make it through uh, because you're not going to do well. At, if you try to do well at all, you're going to spend 100 hours a week working this job. So don't do that. Just try to get yourself through this situation. So that was our, our, our phrase we came up with. And so you clearly, you, you successfully completed those two years training, but then there was quite a big wait for your space missions, weren't there? Yeah. So... Not only did, of course, we, uh, you know, the space station coming to, together, but so in this time period, NASA was thinking when they selected us that there was going to be lots of opportunities for U.S. astronauts to fly in space. They were going to have uh, seven people on the space station and they were going to have like six, seven shuttle flights with seven people and all this kind of stuff. So they had all these opportunities, they thought. And so the class before astronaut class were pretty big and ended up being not happening that way. And so uh, the space station only had three people on board and they were changing out on the space shuttle. So the crews were going up and down. That took three slots of so the seven slots were already then taken up by those people and stuff like that. So it ended up being there was also a huge backlog or a huge queue of people. And you do the math, it was like, I'm not going to fly for like 10 years or something. And so all of a sudden, you know, you got these hard charging people, you know, maybe call them overachievers or not. Uh, but uh, they got nothing to do. But, uh, you know, they get, yeah, you're assigned this job, but it's, a, it's really not a very difficult job. It's pretty menial. Go sit in a meeting, that kind of stuff. Do, do a little work for these engineers, maybe. But you don't really have authority. You don't have uh, anything you have to produce. So it's this kind of a sit and wait kind of job. And as you, you see, you figure out the math, like how long. And it would be tough to keep your motivation up at this mm -hmm. point. And so for everybody, we had our own ways of dealing with it. For me, I decided to try to do different things on a personal level outside of work. I did the ultra marathons and mountain bike racing and all sorts of things just to try to keep myself challenged at that point because you weren't going to get that self-satisfaction out, out of work at this point. And did that work? You know, I mean... I, I made it through it. <laughs> yeah, but, but did you think, I mean, you know, clearly you're, you use that word a high achiever earlier, you know, 
I, I think in you know if I'm trying to keep myself busy, I don't think I'd do an ultra marathon. <laughs> but that's incredible. <laughs> but do you think was it just like a distraction, or did you feel that actually for my mental health, this is helping me, and it's just keeping me just able to cope? I suppose. Yeah, it was definitely a mental health. I mean, I exercise a lot, and I do it for mental health anyway. But this was yeah. another another idea of another level on top of that for the mental health of just keeping myself moving forward in life. I think it's being stagnant that can bother yeah. you. Uh, and so I didn't want to be stagnant. So I wanted to always keep moving forward. And this helped me along that path and made me feel like I wasn't being stagnant. Was this the time when your uh, boss sat you down and said, you will fail? Well, that was before my first mission on the okay. space shuttle. So I got okay. assigned to a special mission after as the eight years of assignment and flew in nine years after I became an astronaut. Uh, but that, that, this guy was a, a really good uh, commander of the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. He was a Marine. And, uh, but he sat me down and he said, you know, even though you're going to train for a year on this one mission and you're going to know your job inside and out, you are going to make mistakes. You are going to have failures. And, and, and then so you have to learn how to deal with that in a sense of and not let it really affect the rest of your work. You know, the thing, so he went, you know, you have to quickly, you know, figure out what went wrong, figure out why it happened and, and, you know, and not, what are you going to do? Not let it happen again and then forget about it. And you got 30 seconds to do all that. And then you have to just let it go and forget about it because you have another job right away. It's a, it's a very time, you know, sensitive environment. We are working, you know, like 18 hours a day and you're just going nonstop. And so you don't have time to, to, you know, feel sorry for yourself or anything like yeah. that. You just have to move on. And so uh, it was really good because it did happen. You know, you don't think it's going to, but it did happen. So, and I've actually, I think it's a great life lesson in, in a way to just, you know, learn from your mistakes, you know, atone if you need to, but then move on, drop mm-hmm. it. It's just baggage mm-hmm. you don't need. While you're waiting, there was also the, the disaster, the Columbia disaster as well. That's true. Um, so, um, and I hope you don't mind me asking, but what was that? What was that like for you? To- uh, that was really difficult. Uh, one, we knew the people really well. I mean, it's imagine being a unit. We don't have that big of, we have like 125 people at that time in the office. And so when seven of them get taken out, you definitely know about it. Uh, it's, it hurts the whole office. And so, but then also we're grounded and we're trying to figure out what happened, what's going on, uh, how can we get back to flight again, and that kind of stuff at the same time you're mourning. And so it's kind of going through this process of working through all that. Uh, but, uh, and then you have to do this self-reflection about like, well, do I really want to do this? You know, yeah. this, the odds, you know, right now, because at that point, that would be, that was the second disaster in the shuttle. And I think that was at, um, maybe like at 95 flights. So you look at the odds there just empirically, it's not great odds. And so like, do I want to get back on one of these things and fly? And then you talk to your family about that. And that's, yeah. it's more difficult, I think, for the family to have to deal with this, especially when you get on that thing and, and you, they do it to a launch. The family has much more stress than you do sitting in the thing because you're happy. You're getting to go to space and you're ready for this great, you know, roller coaster ride to space and all this kind of stuff. And they're out there, you know, thinking about all these possible issues that could happen. And so that's all. It's a difficult for the family in that situation. Mm. And what did your wife say after that? I mean, she sounds like a pretty incredible woman from what you've said so far, but um, when you had that conversation with her after it happened. Yeah, we, we talked about it, but, uh, uh, you know, she knew it's still what I wanted to do yeah. and uh, and wasn't going to, you know, uh, I guess bring it up and say you shouldn't do that. And I would try to do my best. I mean, I'll be honest, you know, like, I, I, you know, you talk to the kids about what you think you're doing and all that, and then, and on the, you know, I guess logical side, I went out and got uh, the biggest life insurance policy I could possibly get. 
because <laughs> uh, you know you want to make sure they're okay afterwards yeah. in case something happens. Mm -hmm. But that was also funny because uh, you know a lot of life insurance companies don't like it if you say you were going to go fly in a space shuttle. They kind of <laughs> cut you off. So. <laughs> it's a little difficult to get that yeah. yeah wow gosh oh well thank you we'll come back we're going to ask you a bit yeah. um some more questions a bit later about what it was like actually going up and um but yeah thank you that yeah. was that was great so uh i'm just going to jump to you for a second jack and ask uh, yes. i'd like to ask you about your first tour of afghanistan mm -hmm. and um steve mentioned there you know family and whatnot at the time of your first tour of Afghan, can you tell me how how your family dealt with it, or you know if, if they were struggling, and then tell me a little bit about what what you did on on, on your first tour of Afghanistan? Sure. So uh, I deployed when I was nineteen years old on Operation Seven. So that's the winter tour, winter seven into early oh eight. Uh, deployed as part of a Royal Engineer search team. Job basically to go out and find. IEDs, implies, explosive devices, bombs, basically. Um, back then, the threat was there, but it wasn't a big threat. And so I didn't really like, tell my mum, my dad, my sister, like, too much what the job entailed. Um, yeah, as I say, like, back then, it, it, it wasn't, a, like, a huge, huge threat. Um, the bombs out on the ground, like, they were massive. Like, you... Any man with dog could go out of the metal detector, like, you know, just searching away. And you would find such a sofa of metal, easy to spot. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't a huge threat. Um, for them, I wasn't really great with comms. Still am not to this day. It would be like a phone call once a month. Um, my mum being an amazing mum she is, you know, she'd be sending blueies out, uh, you know, sending out parcels, Harry Bone, all sorts of stuff on the ground. Um, like, like over Christmas... Um, we had just retaken the Sakala with uh, the American Special Forces and the Afghans. So we was out on the ground all over Christmas. And we had like one like 10 minute phone call on the satellite phone just to, to say Merry Christmas and check in with them. That was basic. That was our Christmas call. That's all we had. So um, yeah, back then it was um, not, not a huge, huge threat, but um, we were still busy. We was, we was out all the time. Was attached to all different call signs, so whether it be the Americans, yeah. the Danish, to um, whatever. Um, I think the Royal Marines back then were leading uh, the brigade, so we, you know, was attached to them. So you weren't need us basically. We were a brigade asset. Like uh, the first tour, I think there was three search teams for the whole of Helmand Province, and uh, come to my second tour in 2010, I think we had between 14 and 15 teams, and they were forward boat, uh, forward posted for the whole tour. Yeah. So it just showed the threat totally changed over the years come to my second tour yeah uh, you, you mentioned blueies there as well and obviously for uh, yes. everyone so they're like a free it's free mail so your, your family can write to you for nothing you know they just they get this blue piece of paper bluey and uh, you, mm -hmm. can, you just write whatever you want and then maybe chuck a few photos in there uh -huh. uh, and stuff like that and you can send them to you, you know people who are on the front line or wherever they be but, um, but yeah it's, it's, uh, something that always haunts me is blueies and rations um, I don't know what it was like for you, Jack. You know, especially when you're pinned down for a while in a forward operating base. Oh um, yeah. I, 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 what What is good? I'd love to, you know, maybe hear from Steve later, later on about. But I don't know what it's like on the, <laughs> space shuttles. Even more remote, isn't it? You know, we're complaining about Afghanistan. At least people can drive out to us. No one's. No one. You can't order a Domino's to the space station. I suppose. <laughs> but, yeah. We had um. We had from a Sakala once again the first tour, like so we was on the ground for a month, so it was literally rat packs the whole month. Come Christmas Day, um 
the Gurkhas who were attached to us, they went to the locals and brought a, a goat and made a goat curry. Unfortunately, it didn't quite agree my stomach and I was on the toilet for the next couple of days. So I was quite embarrassed. And I was eating biscuit browns to try to stodge on my stomach. Yeah. Kind of yeah. So yeah, it was nice. Yeah. Biscuit browns. Treat oh, yourself. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, once again, guys, uh, like so rations, uh, military rations, they're, some are designed to, sorry, clean you out and some are designed to stock you up. Uh, st- yes. stodge you up sort of uh, and brisket browns are one of the ones that sort of hold it together so I think well, <laughs> well you're doing tactical operations forward and whatnot so yeah so after a bad curry sometimes biscuit browns do actually come in handy but they are right like eating cardboard they are um, they are indeed yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I was so sort of on that, oh, I was all going to say, moving on from that note, that uh, <laughs> which is great just to get that clarity about your, everyone's, the military's bowel movements. Um, but I was just, you know, you said there that you were just so busy that you didn't really, did you have time to be scared? Yeah, obviously, I'm sure there was, there was nerves, I think, and back to that. But I don't think I was scared. You know, I was there to do a job. I was there to set not just the guys in my team, the infantry unit were attached to, but also the civilians on the ground as well. You know, um, IEDs, info, explosive devices, they don't judge. You know, if, if you stand on it, it doesn't matter, you know, where you come from, what, what religion you are, whatever, they, they will do you damage. They will kill and hurt you, maim you, you know, um, horrendous devices. But yeah, we didn't have chance or time to be scared, you know. As I say, thankfully, back then, the bombs were that big. They were really easy to find. Um, they, they would try and hide them. They would maybe put some, like, empty metal bullet cases over the top of them. So when you go searching along, the, the mouse detector would pick up the bullet case and so you'd then chuck that to the side and then you would stand on it thinking you had cleared it and that's where you go bang. Their tactics would totally change. They 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 would one day become a farmer and just sit there with a cup of chai morning and just watch your tactics, your formations you're moving in, your patrols you're moving in. Quick Google, oh what detectors are you using today? And that's how they would, you know, it was a cat and mouse game all the time. You you know, it was cat and mouse against the Taliban, how to defeat them. And you successfully, you uh, finished that first tour. Yes. And then you came back and um, mm-hmm. I know you had some time before you went out on your second tour and mm-hmm. you were sent out on other rotations. And is it true that you checked David Cameron's, the, pri- the then Prime Minister's toilet seat um, yes, so at what, their party conference? That's it. One of the great things is when, when you come back off, you kind of go into rotation. So you go onto a national pager, which is if there's any threats to the UK, uh, you literally get a page and you get called out to it. But also that involves doing the uh, the national party conferences. So you do the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. Normally one's in Birmingham, one's in Manchester. And because we're a high-risk team, we would do the red areas, which would be the high dignitaries, their hotel rooms, the main conference suites and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, you would you go in and you know search the mini bar. You wouldn't obviously help yourself to anything, um, but you would also <laughs> search the toilets and anything else. Uh, it was a great week. It normally it normally coincides with a uh, freshers week, so oh, it's always a good, good week out drinking with the freshers. So um, that was always good. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I did search a few of the high dignitaries' toilets to make sure there was nothing trapped in the side. And did you and you trained <laughs> with the SAS as well? Uh, so SBS, SBS. yeah. Um, so special so boat Nas- services. Special boat service, yeah. From from national pager, you go on to maritime intervention pager, which is where you call it. You do all the cool sneaky beaky stuff where you 
uh, do all the heli dunking drills. Uh, you go to Yeovilton, uh, or I don't know, something Yeovilton, maybe base Yeovilton, I don't know. You, you, it's a big box, basically, and they dunk you in the swimming pool, and they flip you upside down. You've got to smash the windows out of, uh, of the, the Chinook, basically, and swim out to make sure you, you can escape a helicopter. You do all your fast roping, which I hated. I absolutely despise fast roping. Um, it's where you wear all your full kit, so you've got your respirator on, your black kit on, you slide down a rope, because you've got your respirator on, you can't actually see the floor. So you just wait for impact and you smash against the floor. So hated that, hated that. And you you do the uh, the Jacob's ladder as well. So this ladder is like really thin and you've got to pull yourself an underarm. So you, it, it simulates attacking a boat. So you're climbing yourself up a boat. Uh, but that was really good fun. Uh, we never got called out on that, thank God. Um, but you do that for six months and then you're straight back into pre-deployment uh, training for Afghanistan. So it's a... Uh, a rotator basis kind of thing. I mean, I wouldn't say that that was my definition of fun, but you know, each <laughs> each their own. Each Steve their does own, ultra marathons. You do like weird <laughs> going up ropes. I prefer just having a cup of a cup of, or oh, actually a glass of wine, a cup of tea. What am I talking about? Um, yeah, and I, I imagine um, the physical training to get into space must have been pretty full on as well. Yeah. Um- that you do have some physical requirements to do to pass, but they're actually pretty uh, easy to do. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, so some people were in great shape, and some people weren't. I'll say that right now. And uh, and so, but it was not a huge requirement to to be in space. So really, the only physically demanding thing you have to do is a spacewalk. And besides that, you're floating, and so uh, you don't really need much at all, honestly. Uh, but uh, they're worried about for certain emergency situations that you need to be physically in good shape to be able to get out of some of uh, the emergency situations where you're you're going to have to be you know strong enough to lift things and do stuff like that. So that was what they that the tests were based off of. Okay. One other thing I wanted to I realized when uh, Jack was talking is you know I have a son who's in the military and he's been in Afghanistan so I understand the parent side of that whole version of mm-hmm. you know you just because and you know you don't hardly hear from them ever as, as Jack was talking about but you know and, you, and so you're watching the news all the time to see you know where they are about you don't know exactly where they are. And you just, you know, as you're just waiting for the news to find out every day, you know, what happened in that area, what happened in that area. And that it gets, you know, you can definitely fixate on that, but it definitely gets long after a while for a year of deployment or something like that to just keep, you know, kind of paying attention to that. And then, so it's sort of a lot nicer when they do get home, that's for sure. And was that, was that sort of, I don't know if interesting, it, that's clearly not the right word, but for, you were the family member this time. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it's a little different. Yeah, twist on things like that. So, yeah. um, uh, so I just you never got their viewpoint of the whole situation and, and tried to uh, you know, deal with it the best you can. Uh, yeah, but you know, it's one of those things you can't. Uh, I, I try to be logical about things, and you really you, you can't control it. So there's not much you can worry. I mean, I mean, you can worry, but you can't really do anything about it. So you just got to kind of let it be, mm-hmm. and and be comfortable with it. So uh, they're doing what they want to do, and just think of it that way. And you got to support them the best you can. And so I try to do that too. But it does always. It's just still a little bit of worry all the time. Steve, so um, something that is like I just think is. Super cool is like sitting in that cockpit, you know, like face it, for, like looking up at the sky. Can you tell us a bit about like you know, the first uh, space mission you, you did, uh, you know, uh, and do you how do you prepare physically and mentally, you know, for that? And yeah. Yeah, so again, we get a year long training to do this first mission, and, and you and you go through every task 
uh, over, you know, multiple times, so you know it pretty well. But uh, we spend 40% of our training in the cockpit of the space shuttle, just going over uh, launch procedures, entry procedures, and all the emergencies that could possibly happen that they can think of. And you just, so we're doing, you know, that's a lot of time you think over a year, 40% of your time is spent in this one simulator, just doing over and over again. And, and so you get pretty comfortable uh, with the systems and all the failures that could possibly go wrong and all this stuff. Um, but because I think that's always a big distraction so you don't really think about what you're really doing uh, getting on this huge rocket with a uh, six million pounds of fuel and so uh, it's just uh, that's uh, interesting so I have to admit you know a, uh, and even with that day of launch and the spatial uh, probably didn't launch maybe or like when you know when you're scheduled to launch and you go out you got a 50% chance maybe of launching that day because it could be from weather to a system malfunction or something like that and they scrubbed the launch right so I always went out when we're going out and getting dressed I was thinking like yeah we're just, it's just a practice run today and so I wasn't getting my hopes up like we're going to go to space today so I had that mentality which I think also helped me keep me calm that right. I wasn't going to uh, you know worry about things and then mm -hmm. really uh, the way, way it starts going is at nine minutes to launch you actually get the call that weather's good and so we're going to proceed at that point so you got nine minutes there and then things start uh, we start up auxiliary power units at five minutes that's another little thing that could fail once those go okay that's good so now we're at five minutes to go and we're getting more things and things keep going until about the last thing at two minutes to go you get this call that everything's good you're going to close and lock your visor turn on your oxygen stuff like that because now you're it's the last thing you have to do before you launch and then so you got two minutes to realize that I think I'm going to launch today. Oh, crap. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's going to happen. And then you start thinking about all the possibilities and then your mind going through, you know, oh my God, was this a smart decision? I don't know. You know, <laughs> luckily you don't have too much time to think about that. And then being also on the flight deck, we also have procedures to start running, you know, about 30 seconds prior to launch. You start running some procedures and checks and stuff like that. So what that's great for me because then it takes my mind off that other stuff yeah. and we can go back into the job. And I admit though, when, when the launch happens, you forget all about the job because it's just amazing. You know, jump off this launch pad. And uh, from where I'm sitting, I, I have a, a window above my head uh, that goes back towards like the launch pad area. And I have a, and on purpose, I have a, a mirror on my wrist so I can just see this view from there. I can see the view from the side. Sides don't give you much view because it's just blue sky, right? So you're not seeing much that way. But to see the, and if you've seen the big billow of smoke coming out, right? You can see that happen. And that's actually water vapor because 10 seconds prior to launch, they fill the whole area with water to keep it from, the engines are so powerful, they would blow the concrete away. And so that's a suppression system to keep that from happening. And so that's this big bill. You see that happening. You, we, we monitor that the main engines light at six seconds prior. And if those are all good, you're going to go. So we're monitoring that. They're good to go. And when those solid rocket boosters hit, I mean, you are just like jumped off the launch pad. It is an amazing amount of thrust right from the beginning. And it's shaking. And so it's, it's an amazing ride for that, especially the first two minutes and 10 seconds you got the solid rocket boosters going. Is it just shaking you and you feel this huge amount of acceleration? I mean, the time you leave the launch tower, you know, if you've seen the you've seen pictures of it, right? As you're going by the launch tower, you leave it, you're already going over 100 miles an hour. Uh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just amazing acceleration. Yeah. Uh, and that's vertical too, right? It's not like you're going sideways. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it's, uh, it knocks you back in the seat. And so it's a great ride in that way. And then we're, you know, the whole time too, though, I'm in the checklist doing that and also trying to look out the window at the same time. So, yeah. you know, play those two a little bit. Uh, but it was definitely uh, an amazing write-up. And then after the solid rocket boosters, you got 
six minutes and 32 seconds or so of the main engines, which are quite smooth. And then it ends up being kind of interesting because you know, all this training we did, we had failures over and over again, and it ended up being like this eight minutes, it takes eight minutes and 32 seconds to get to space or into orbit. And, uh, and it felt like really quick with all these different training scenarios because we were always doing malfunctions after one after the other, and you're just always yeah. just going as fast as you can. And here, we only had like one little light bulb come off that say that was like some minor little thing that we didn't have to do anything about. But besides that, you're just sitting there waiting for a failure to happen. And it's like, it's a long time to sit on this engine, you know, going and getting this acceleration and all the speed yeah. and just waiting for something to happen. And luckily it doesn't, but it's kind of, uh, it ends up being a long eight minutes. That's for sure. Yeah. How do you just, get your head around that? Yeah. You know, because yeah. I would just be absolutely panicking, but clearly yeah. that's why I'm not like, an astronaut. Yeah, just <laughs> some of the numbers that you're throwing out there, quite blase, six million pounds of fuel did you say that am i saying yeah, that yeah. figure correctly yeah 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 yes it's just wild like it's it's and to set off at 100 miles an hour when obviously what we're watching on tv it looks like quite lethargic as it's going up there yeah it? So, yeah but, yeah but, it um, does it is but, not yeah, wow and so what else were the challenges in space i mean dare i ask about about the food uh well i probably not much different honestly we have uh uh, packages close to you know the U.S. MREs, but we don't. They don't they're not the actual MREs that uh, they use. Um, um, the food was not very good though for us. Uh, I think it varies a little bit. But so when I went up, I would say, let me. Oh, I should qualify this. There's on the space shuttle mission. It was pretty good because it was pretty fresh, even though it was MREs. You get to pick it. You you know, so you were really. Um, uh, it was stuff that you really liked and it was not uh, old because uh, the idea of the space food, it has to have a shelf life of three years. But if you get it fresher, it's better than getting it older. I'm sure the same way with MREs in the military, right? Uh, if you get that one with the expiration date, it's already at, you know, it's not going to be that good. And yeah. so the shuttle flights were pretty, weren't that bad at all. Uh, but when I did my long duration, uh, you don't get to pick your menu. And so it, that was really a difficult actually aspect of that. And then, um, that we happened just timing wise that the food was up there was pretty much at end of expiration date so all the meat was almost unedible on board yeah. definitely the beef was and the chicken was some of it was okay and so it just it was just difficult to that was one of the hardest parts to get through for me for the, you know being stuck up there with with really no good food at all and so trying to figure out how to you know just i mean now i get through it and what was it how did you get used to weightlessness yeah, well, your body's pretty amazing at how it can adapt. Uh, the first little bit is not so good because you get a little nausea. Uh, I mean, you guys, I'm sure, been on roller coaster rides, right? And you, that's a free fall. Actually, the special isn't a free fall the whole time. So that little free fall, if you've ever done any kind of free fall stuff, and your stomach kind of comes up a little bit, well, that's just permanent. Think of it that way. And then, so your body has to figure out how it's going to handle this and get through this. And it does it within some, you know, it could be like five hours to a day or so, uh, depending on the person. Uh, but it will adapt to this whole new environment pretty quickly. And then, and then it's just learning the physics of moving because everything you do is all about physics up there. It's like, uh, if you push off on a wall, you're floating. But if I have a center of gravity that's down here, down here, and I push off up here, I'm also going to rotate as I go. So I have to figure out ways to push so that I don't, you know, flip or do uh, how I just ever want to do it. I work, I got to figure that out. And it's amazing. The body, you don't even worry about, you don't really worry about the physics. Your body just adapts and figures it out within days. It's just amazing. I know that you were up um, when you were the commander of the ISS, the International Space Station, you were up there for six months. 
what was it like up there? Do you feel that all that training had prepared you, not just physically, but also mentally as well? Yeah, I mean, definitely the training prepares you to do all the tasks. That's the first thing, right? It doesn't prepare you for floating in space. Yeah, that you have to learn on your own. There's no really good simulator for that or anything like that to do. Uh, we have a little plane that can give you 20 some seconds of float, but it doesn't. It's not enough to actually get the feeling and being permanently in that uh, environment. So you have to learn that yourself, figure it out, and really that makes the hardest things to do for you to learn are the little day-to-day activities from, you know, brushing your teeth and, and doing all these things like that. Those become more difficult in space. And then the, the tasks we do are, we already, we've trained on all that kind of stuff. We know that really well. So that's not that difficult for us. It's just all these other little things that become efficient at them and not spend a lot of time uh, on those that, uh, and just become like your morning routine has to become efficient and quick. And that, that takes actually a little bit of work to get all that done. Yeah. And what was it like seeing Earth for the first time? Well, okay, you know, um, it's made it a little disappointing. How about that way? Because uh, Yeah, on the first shuttle mission, uh, I didn't get to look out the window until about at least three hours into the mission because we were working again, you know, heads down. I was, uh, had to do the, the cockpit stuff. We, we had a couple, we call them burns to change our orbit, right, and some other uh, stuff we do. So I was still in my seat working checklists for about an hour and a half. And then after that, I had to set up computer systems and the and the uh, on the space space shuttle, uh, basically we have laptops that we've put up uh, with all sorts of displays and other stuff we can we're going to do. So I'm setting that up. So there wasn't time, and I finally get a chance to look out the window, and we're over the ocean, and so I get to see is blue water with clouds, which is cool in a way, but it's like it it really it, which wasn't what I you know I was thinking is you know like the the whole for you know halo with uh, the light coming down, the music shining, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff is going to happen, and it was it was like this oh okay, and then I went back to work. Now, I have to admit, uh, the big difference, though, on the space station, when we got to uh, look at it over and over and study the planet, it was became totally different. I really love looking at Earth that way. Uh, we have this area called the cupola, which is like a glass-bottom boat. So it has uh, se- seven windows, six around the side, one down like this, and it's big enough for a couple of people to actually just float into and mm-hmm. get in there and just kind of monitor or stare at Earth. And, uh, and you really get to know Earth that way really, really well. And I think it was really interesting for me because you don't know it by countries and cities and stuff like that. You know it by rivers, oceans, lakes, mountain ranges, deserts, all that kind of stuff. The ecosystem is how you know the planet. And it's kind of really kind of cool to see that and how things even change. You can see the, the, the windstorms over the Sahara change the, the patterns of the sand dunes, stuff like that. So that was really kind of cool to get that viewpoint and understanding of our planet. Wow. I mean, that is, there's not many people in this world who can, who have stories like that and had that experience. Um, And, you know, this is something that I asked, or we asked Jack earlier, you know, I said, was there any time that you were scared or were you again? I mean, it sounds like you were just so busy, much like Jack, just doing your job and... Yeah, you know, they say that you get a little apprehensive before launch, but once you're going, you're, you're not scared anymore. And then when you're, once you're in space, uh, it's just like you're, I feel pretty safe inside that vehicle. Uh, so I never worried about anything, uh, that kind of stuff. We also, I'm sure like, like Jack, we train for emergency situations. You know, anything happens, uh, you know, on, on board the space station, it's a fire, 
or a depressor, which is a hole inside the a hole out for the station, so the air goes out. We don't want that. Or another thing we have called ammonia leak, which that's a long story. But long short, that we have a system that uh, if it starts leaking ammonia into the system into the side of the space station, ammonia is really bad for you. So we have those. Those are three big emergencies, and we train so much on the ground before we go, and then. We have, uh, like, I'm sure, like monthly training sessions on the space station to make sure we can handle this. And those are your big worries. And so we okay. felt really confident that we could handle any of those if they came. Uh, Jack, so you were sent back out to Afghanistan on a second tour. Uh, how did you feel before leaving for the second time? You know, your family, are you able to tell us a little bit more about that, mate? Yeah, sure. So I redeployed summer 2010 and yeah, I was, I was definitely more nervous, uh, a little older, being there, done it, got a t-shirt, but also it was just the news. Like it, it felt like every day there was like broadcasts that would say on the news, oh, another British soldier would put his de dead. And it, it felt like that every day. And what you wasn't hearing about was the casualties. Um, and obviously retraining for going back out they, the way they were training and teaching, it was like the threat had totally changed. The IEDs, more complex, less metal in them, less hard and no metal in them. So you give a Joe Bloggs instrument and they'll set to find something no metal in it. You could see why there were so many casualties and fatalities. Uh, so I was more nervous. My parents, especially my mum, were way more nervous and more scared for me. Um, yeah, it, it was a strange feeling going back out, scary feeling going back out, but I had a job to do. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, I loved my job. You know, I did. I did love it. You know, we're the forefront, leading the line. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it, it, I don't. Yeah, and you you share some similarities with me. That I remember before my second tour, it felt the second tour was so much more. I was so much more anxious or scared. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm not saying it. You know, everyone's allowed to get scared once in a while. But um, I remember. Uh, I remember selling my car. I had a Jeep at the time. Sold my Jeep. Because I just didn't think I was going to come home to use it. Um, I said, yeah, and I know other guys out there that sold their sold their properties uh, because they just talked themselves into it that they just weren't going to come home. Uh, yeah. For, for me, on my, on my first tour, like I took no personal insurance out, yeah. literally none compared to my second tour. Yeah. I was like, right, fifteen, forty units. You know, you kind of, yeah. it, 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 I just, I think I was that naive in the first tour, thinking nothing would happen to me. Compared to the second tour, I was like, no, I need to be fully insured. <laughs> and was it yeah. easier easier to get insurance than sort of being an astronaut, like <laughs> saying soldier? <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, take us back to it. So you're in Afghanistan for the second yeah. time. And yes. what happened? Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I got out there summer 2010. Um, I'd say that we, we did our, like, initial package once we arrived and then we were straight on the ground for an eight day off. It was like straight into theatre, straight out on the ground. And we would fought, be forward base the whole, basically the whole tour. We went back in Bastion, you know, and all those, you know, eating Pizza Hut back in Bastion with air conditioning. We was literally out on the ground straight away. Uh, the threat had totally changed. Um, but we, we we were doing the job and, you know, we were finding them, you know, we were counteracting the Taliban, we are defeating them. Fortunately for me, um, they always say, you know, the, the most high-risk times of getting injured were either the beginning of the tour because you're new to theatre or towards the end of the tour because maybe you might be a bit lapsed, you know, you're thinking of home and all that. So I had about a month and a half to go. And, uh, yeah, I, I found a bomb, but just the wrong way of finding it. I always joke. Uh, bad day at the office, shall we say. Um, yeah, it, 
tell the truth, I don't actually remember much about the day, which I think is a good thing. I think that's my mind saying you don't remember that day. I, it's, it's more I feel guilt because the guys on my team, they will probably remember that day for the rest of their lives. I've got a little bit of guilt there because, yeah, um, yeah they'll, they'll probably stuck those horrors. You know, they always joked I wasn't much of a, much of a looker anyway, but God knows what they saw on that day. <laughs> Missing two limbs, I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. And so you, you stepped on a... When you were out on patrol, you stepped on an IED. I, I stepped on one, yeah. I searched him for it and, you know, I you know, can't beat myself up for real. I can't literally kick myself up for it now anymore. <laughs> it, is, it is one of those things, you know, I missed it. I, you know, the only person to blame is myself. I, you know, only one to blame is myself. But I don't blame myself, you know. At the end of the day, I'm alive. Many of the guys, you know, you know aren't here today. Um, I was very, you know, I was one of the very fortunate ones to come home and survive uh, what happened to me. You know, I've always been quite positive about it because, you know, so many doctors and nurses have told me that, you know, I, should, I shouldn't be here today. So, I mean, I'm very fortunate. You know, I've got a great out- I like to think I've got a great outlook on life. You know, Definitely. I'm very positive and yeah. making the most of a bad situation. Yeah, you um, you say there, Jack, doctors and nurses and, and whatnot. Um, so, you've woke up in either Sully Hill Hospital or Birmingham Queen Elizabeth, um, probably been in an induced coma for a, a while. Um, tell us a little bit more about that coming out of that and then you know into where we both were Headley Court and whatnot sure. tell us a little bit more about that please mate so yeah I got I got injured uh, 14th August 2010 and I woke up a month later uh, saying the coma <clears throat> and yeah I didn't have a clue what was going, going you know going on um, you know loads of medication pumping through you uh, I had a tracheostomy in my throat so I couldn't speak it wasn't until a couple of weeks later they, they took the track off me out. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd done the thing where you feel down and something wasn't quite right. I, I, I couldn't feel my legs. So uh, I got my dad in, you know, saying earlier, you know, one of the main reasons joining the army was my dad, you know, squatty, being there, done it, got the T-shirt. And anybody would tell me straight, be my old man. So I got him in just by himself. And I said, bluntly, you know, have I, have I lost my legs? You know, my dad didn't say anything. He just started crying and I mean like bawling he he, he was just so controllable he, he just he was just gone on one and that's when it kicked in yeah I've actually lost my legs I'm not still high on medication I'm still not in a coma this is real I've lost my legs kind of thing um, all he could do was hug me you know because it set me off I was shouting screaming trying to kick um, all he could do was just try and calm me down and he just said you know you know you're here you know you're here don't you know please you know you shouldn't be here but you're here oh, what a lovely dad yeah yeah uh, yeah uh, yeah felt that one jack well put mate yeah. um but uh it's um so, so yeah headley court the rehab you know procedure and all that we're there for a while bit of banter's flying around with the lads and whatnot are in similar similar situations and steve uh, just yeah, so yeah. you know so um yeah, headley sorry, court yeah. in the uk is um like the um it's the national military rehab center so uh, once you come out of hospital then normally all the guys and girls go there yeah i think you've got walter reed uh <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That? there you go yeah and then um yeah. And then, yeah, so so Headley Court and that, then Jack, get, get on all right, dead, dead, Yeah, Deadly Headley, deadly yeah. Headley. Uh, so I was in hospital. I was in the QE for five and a half months, uh, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Um, so it was five, five and a half months there, and then I got transferred Headley February 2011, got there. And the great thing about Headley was they wanted you independent as quick as possible. That's one of the great things that I wanted from the army in the first place was to leave home and become independent. They got you your independence back straight away from lying in a hospital bed, literally for five and a half months, just laying there. 
doing nothing to right day one headley court right let's get you in a manual wheelchair let's get you out about let's get you moving um it was hard you know it was a a kick up the bum so to speak you know they got you moving um i just saying like um steve earlier about you know um you know the basics in space you know brushing teeth for me it was the basics all over again it was learning to go to the toilet again it was learning to get dressed it was learning to drive my car again. It was all the basics I needed to, to learn re again. So once I left the military, I could come home here and and live by myself. You know, it, it, was, it was all those basic things, which, you know, it, it helped. It was a long, I think I was there for three and a half years. Uh, you do like a month on, a month off, but um, it really did help and it, it was needed. But t- towards the end, you know, uh, my final six months, I got to that point where they'd done as much as possible for me. And I was, I, you know, I went to my doctor and I said, you know, so... I think I'm at my point now where I'm, I'm ready to transition into civil street and civilian life. You know, I've done my time in the military. It's time for me to move on. What I really want to know as well is what was it like in them early days at home when you've gone from, you know, the rehabilitation centres and things like that and the hospitals and the doctors and the surgeons and the surgeries and everything like that. How did you find it, you know, at home, at family life uh, with, with, uh, with life-changing injuries? Hard. Uh, just... I've got to admit, like, I moved into my bungalow that I got, which was adaptive, and I was living here by myself, and uh, I kind of got fat, or shall I say, I got morbidly obese. I, I kind of, I had no drive, no drive, no aim, no, nothing to aim for, shall I say. Like, with the military, it's very, well, I love it, it's very routine. It's very, like, you, you wake up this time, you go and do this run, you do rifle practice, or you do search practice. You know, it's, it's very regimented, there's a routine to it. I kind of got home and I kind of had nothing nothing to do. I kind of just sat on the sofa. I watched too much Jeremy Kyle and ate too much food and drank too much alcohol. And yeah, I, I just kind of like wasted away doing nothing and nothing to aim for and to keep me going, basically. How do you, how did, you know, clearly something changed. What was that? Because you'd been, Is yeah. there one word or two words, the wife. <laughs> Look at all these wonderful women. <laughs> my, my missus, you know, she's incredible. Um, I actually say on in my MGR speak that she comes in one day and she looks me up and down and she goes, Jack, for Christ's sake, you've got bigger tits than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it kicked off. Like, oh my God. I, I had to take a good hard look at myself because, yeah, like I, I, I just got to the point where I needed someone in my life to give that authority figure, right, go and do something. And she, you know, she said for me, you know, we've got a wedding in a couple of years, I was a year and a half, two years. That for me, start training, start losing weight, look good for the wedding pictures. For me, that's what it was. You know, so I started gymming, started going to swimming pool, started cycling, and the weight started falling off. And that opened me up to opportunities like the Invictus Games and certain triathlons and London Marathon. That got me motivated, I shall say. She motivated me. It, it was harsh words. It was tough, harsh words. But it was harsh words that I needed to hear. Mm. It, you know, it was brutal. It was hard to be kind or, you know, I don't know, sorry, so many years. Um, you know, I, I needed to hear that. And, um, you know, I love her to death. You know, I say in my, in my talk, you know, she's very much like Bernadette from the Big Bang Theory. She's small and petite, but she's got a gob on her. And, I, you know, I love her. And um, it was, we actually celebrated our wedding, third wedding anniversary yesterday. Hey. So, uh, Congratulations. Yeah, so, yeah, thank you very much. And, you know, I mean, she sounds wonderful, but also congratulations to you because you had a choice there sat on that sofa and you could have just basically told her to, you know, bog off and, yeah, yeah, and you didn't. 
No, I think once again, that's probably your military training. Um, you know, you improvise, you adapt, you overcome. It's, it's very much ingrained into you to, to keep going, yeah. uh, whatever situation. I feel like as well, um, going through Headley, uh, there's so many crazy injuries you'll see, like guys missing arms, you know, you know, eyes, legs, the full shebang. And it's, it's a great sense of humour there, like squatty bands is, is very sick and it's very dark and you very you take, you take the mick out of everybody and anybody and if, you know being in that environment you look at someone and you go well if he's got one arm and one leg and he's doing this or he's got no legs and he's doing this then you know why can't I you know you know you, you look at all the other guys and they inspire you to keep going as well you know it's, it was a great place to be at it was hard but it was a great place to be at wow, well done you it's amazing thank you now Steve um I'd imagine, you know, when you came back down to earth, there requires a, a quite a bit of re- rehabilitation or recalibration to come to become a sort of earth dweller again. And obviously it looks very different to anything that sort of Jack's been through. But what was that like? What was the process when you came back to earth and you joined us again? Um, what happened? Yeah, um, first you are a guinea pig, so they're doing lots of tests on you. Uh, so that's one of the things you have to go through. Um, that's about two months, but then we do go also at the same time you're doing it in rehab uh, because even though we worked out part of our body is strong and it's pretty good, but other parts are really, really weak. It's basically like being bedridden for six months in parts of your body. So it's, uh, it's really weak. And so that was especially in my core, uh, area like that in my, you know, neck, stuff like that. You don't really work out ever. And so, uh, that was interesting to go through that. It's really a body that isn't, um, normally functional. Cause I mean, you couldn't, I couldn't really even run. I could walk, but I couldn't really run. It was just like the coordination and muscles working all together just weren't really work. So it took about six months of rehab to get through all that and, and to be back to normal again. And so I don't, it wasn't near what Jack went to at all. Uh, but it was definitely uh, something you had to go through uh, coming back from space. I know that Hannah said earlier when you, you landed and then you were only allowed to see your family for sort of 20 minutes before you were taken off for, for tests. And yeah, for tests. Yeah. So you land in, in Kazakhstan is where we, when you do the six month mission, I saw you land in Kazakhstan. Uh, you do tests right when you land and then you get on a helicopter to the nearest airport, which is two hours away. And then you get on a, an airplane and start working your way back to the States and, and stopping a couple of times for fuel. And then, but you're just going straight. As soon as you land there, so you get 20 minutes with the family and then they whisk you away and you do eight hours of test. There's a long time period. You know, you're, you've been awake for a long, long time too. And so it's definitely a, uh, not, you know, optimal, but uh, they're trying to get all these tests done before you start adapting back to, okay. to an earth environment. That's what they're really doing. So they're trying to do as quickly as they possibly can. And that I just continues. That- yeah. And I was just going to say, you know, you said it earlier, the, the, the body's amazing ability to adapt as well was just all kicking in. Yeah, it does. And really, the other thing, besides the muscles, the other thing is the, the uh, called the ear balance system, your neurovestibular system. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in space, to get rid of that nausea, actually your brain stops using the inner ear, which gives you the balance, right? And so it, it uh, has to reincorporate that back in. So when I first got back, I would, could walk with my eyes open, but if I closed my eyes, I would fall right over. It was just uh, interesting. So I couldn't, it was like, and it, even when I walked, it was like a four margarita walk. You know, it was not like I was straight at all. Uh, so it was definitely a, a wobbly thing, but it got better and better. And, and that took about uh, 10 days to get that, that cleared up. 
Wow. Gosh, amazing. What an incredible experience. Yeah. I got one question for Jack. You brought up something I thought was really interesting is the, you know, when you're, you're doing this whole body rehab, right? And I'm sure you're doing some psychological stuff at the same time. But yes. like me, when I, when I wasn't working uh, or that job, I had to find some purpose in life, really. And I think to, to send you out without purpose, do they help you try to find a purpose in life, you know, when, after you're going through this? Uh, yeah, so uh, you do resettlement, so you can retrade and retrain, which is great. You know, it's, um, normally if you're leaving the military, they do it's a full year, I think. But for when you're injured, um, there's all different centres you can go to. You're attached to a recovery unit, and they can set you up. Um, you are well looked after on the mental side. For me, um, when I got headly caught, uh, I spent a year and a half in the mental health team, um, which was really good for me. Just once a week talking through my future and um, you know what happened, trying to remember what happened. And they really looked after you that way for a year and a half. I know like a load of guys are struggling now, uh, but I know there are some great charities out there that you can get hold of. Um, but for me, yeah, I was, I was really well looked after. Uh, you know, they, they, they cover all bases, which was great. Yeah, it's great. Because I'm just thinking about, you know, mine was not that level, but I mean, just not having purpose for me for a while was driving me crazy. I can't imagine the same idea. Just not having a purpose would, I think, be almost worse than, than most of everything. Everything. Mm. Sure. Um, even more so, as I say, I've just been inside for four and a half months shielding with COVID. So I haven't really had much of a, I've been watching too much Netflix and playing too much Xbox. That's all I literally could do. I can't, I can't get out of the house. So for, for me and my, my wife this week, we've literally been out every day just to experience something and get outside the house. <laughs> yes. but, but interestingly, like, you know, Steve, you said in that time when you needed to give yourself a purpose because the job wasn't fulfilling enough, you did the ultra marathons, you, you know, you set yourself challenges and actually... Jack, once you got yourself into that sort of positive mindset, you you've achieved so much since you've left Headley Core. I mean, it's incredible. You've completed marathons. You've taken part in the Invictus Games. You've been part of the Making Generation R campaign. Um, what has been your biggest challenge, or what have been your biggest challenges? Um. Biggest one was to get going to begin with, but then the London Marathon, I'd say, um, the, the, I don't know, it's like one challenge inspired me to the next. So I was supposed to actually do the New York Marathon this November. Um, it's going to have a different charity to do New York Marathon. Um, I've always wanted now to have an aim to, to keep me going. Um, but yeah, definitely New York Marathon. One, to get into uh, to London Marathon is so hard. Like I, I entered the ballot for like three years in a row. It's like not impossible to get a ballot spot oh, wow. in the London Marathon. So thankfully, Blesma uh, had a wheelchair space for me. You know, I snapped up and uh, raised over £3,000 from which was great just to give back to the charity. Uh, that supported me so much. Um, but yeah, definitely the training um, around my local area, it's not the greatest. The, all the roads and paths are slanted. So pushing on in my wheelchair is absolutely hard work, but it's given me a purpose to get out on the road and get, get going again. Um, with Invictus, it, what the great thing with that is you had all the different training camps. So like once a month, you'd be going away like to Carrick to Plymouth to go swimming and training. So that wasn't too bad. Um, but yeah, definitely the London Marathon was my hardest. We'll see how New York is hopefully next year, fingers crossed. Wow, and what was your time? Uh, just so far, I think it was four out of ten oh, I did that's... it. In. So the thing, the thing with London though is they started me at the back, so it was like wacky races trying to manoeuvring out so many <laughs> different runners. It was just like for twenty six miles shouting wheelchair coming through. <laughs> Literally for twenty six miles, I was shouting wheelchair, wheelchair, wheelchair. So, uh, but yeah, it was an incredible experience. I recommend it if you know if you. 
if you get the chance to do a marathon, like the people on the sides of the streets, the whole 26 miles, just clapping and cheering you on. It was such an incredible experience. Oh, Gosh, congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Amazing. And uh, Steve, s- similar question. You know, you've been into space on the shuttles and the Soyuz and been in charge of the, you know, the International Space Station and stuff like that. What were, what were your biggest challenges? Oh, man. You know, again... I think uh, just never given up to because, you know, it takes a long time. It took me 12 years when I decided to become an astronaut, become an astronaut and a lot of work. So just not giving up. Uh, you know, you can easily, you know, you get rejection letters all, you know, every couple of years, you know, on standard like that. But, uh, and so you have to have the motivation though to make yourself better and better. And you just can't give up and keep trying to get better and better as you go through it. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges just to, to deal with is, is, uh, is keeping the positive attitude and that you have a good possibility if you do this. And so don't give up yet. Keep trying. Yeah. And um, that leads me quite on to this. You know, both of you, uh, have, uh, you both your jobs require a great stre- uh, sense of strength, uh, keeping, you know, calm and in control in, you know, dodgy situations. Has there ever been any times, you know, where you felt really vulnerable uh, or that, that's something that I'd really like to know from both of you, if possible, uh, where something's caught you out? Jack, you want to go first? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I haven't thought of anything yet. I wanted you to go first so I could think some more. (laughs) Have you you got anything in mind, Jack? (laughs) Uh, The most vulnerable um, match on tour is definitely just waking up in a hospital bed, not knowing what's going on. Uh, There's a million things racing through your mind. Um, I wasn't really worried for myself. When I I first started speaking, I was actually more worried about my team because... I was actually thinking that the bomb I set off, I'd injured somebody else. And I was more worried about my team more than myself. And that's uh, where I came vulnerable. Um, thankfully, it was just me who got injured and nobody else at the time. Uh, don't think I could have had that on my head, causing someone else's injury. Uh, that that would have probably sent me off. Um, but yeah, not not just, just lying there, not being able to do anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many incredible doctors and nurses in our NHS that patch me back up together and save my life can never be ever grateful for them for everything they've done Definitely. but I was literally just just lying there not being able to do anything uh, that's the most vulnerable I've been yeah. um, out on tour um, yeah obviously when you're leading the line and not knowing if your next step's your last obviously you're very vulnerable but at the same time you're, you're hoping that your team are going to be there for you and it was we had a great team on that ground um, whether you know whatever injuries call sign we're attached to you know they were giving us cover so you know you rely on them and they've done a great job for us and yeah uh, definitely waking up in hospital most vulnerable thank you Steve how about you yeah so Thanks for giving me time, Jack. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he really stretched that one out. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. So I was thinking about it, you know, I'm going to be emotionally excited. I think it was be when the Columbia accident happened, and, you know, that was really, uh, you definitely felt vulnerable in the sense of that, uh, you know, this could have been anybody at any time. Uh, it was your friends that went through this whole thing, and, and it just was a big blow to all of us. And I think that just made you kind of reevaluate and sit back and think about all oh, what's your priorities in life and all that kind of stuff and, and how just really vulnerable you are in this job period. But then besides that, like in the, in the moment kind of thing, would just be just before launch. I think that's the when you feel the same idea. It's like, uh, you know, there's still like a, 
one in 70 chance you're not going to make it. And so it's just like, you just kind of feel a little vulnerable at the same time, you know, like it's, it's what I want to do. It's going to be fine. I'm just going to, you know, we've trained well, we can handle the emergencies. We got this uh, kind of attitude, but at the same time in the back of mind, you know, this is a vulnerable time. And have, how have your experiences changed your views on the world or the way that you behave in it? I don't know if it changed much, but it definitely reinforced it. You know, and I say, talk about looking back on Earth, you know, and you see this one ecosystem. And I think that's a big difference we have. You know, we come out, you know, being down on Earth, it's always like you have different countries, you know, you know, all these other things going on. People, you know, of course, disagreeing on all sorts of different issues, all these things happening, conflict all over. And you look at it from space, it's just one small planet, very, very small planet in this vast universe, right? And, and it's just, and, we are so close, you know, our, our atmosphere is actually quite thin. And if we didn't have that, you know, uh, we'd be in the vacuum of space and it wouldn't be a very good day for us humans. And uh, it's just like we are really in this fragile situation and in this one ecosystem on this one ball. And we have to think of it differently that way. We have to think of it as we're just one group on this planet. And we have to more, I think, live more, in, you know, if we can, of course, <laughs> in unison and unity. Uh, but uh, that's what I would like to see, of course. But because uh, that kind of gives you that, that viewpoint that, that it's, you know, we're not different. We're all the same. Absolutely. Wow. It's one of the best things I've ever heard, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> and Jack, how about you? Has your experience changed your, your view of the world? Perception of life, I'd say, uh, you know, totally believe you can live once. You've got to try and make the most of it. Um, my situation now, I'm, t- I, I'm totally, you know, all these opportunities that are given to me, I'm just going to grab them both hands and make the most of life. Um, very grateful for being here. You know, um, I'll always be very grateful, uh, as I shouldn't be. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, Politics aside, with Afghanistan, I, I like to think we made a difference out there. Um, you know, my, as I say, my job wasn't there to have a gunfight and you know kick off. It was to to search these bombs and try and make Helmand Province a safer place for for the locals to just go about their daily business. But yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to make the best out of my life, uh, live a day at a time. Um, and um, yeah, you only live once, let's make the most of it. Steve. Uh... You must have had some very difficult moments, uh, you know, along your path. Um, did you have any sort of, how did you deal with them? Did you have a coping mechanism? Did you have a go-to thing? For example, uh, since I was blown up in Afghanistan, something that's really helped me, even though I'm absolutely terrible, is golf. I find that um, just hitting this stupid white little ball around the grass. Uh, well, it's something you can swear at that doesn't yell back at you, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. So I'm just wondering if you had something that, you know, helped you? Did, was there something that you went to when, you, you know, you, you were having a bit of a struggle or things just seemed well, to... Well, yeah, for, to me, like, to help my stress, I work out. It's the same idea, right? I do. Yeah. I, that helps me tremendously. But yeah. I found, for me, it's interesting, just my personality, that if I go into a problem, I'm, I'm kind of like uh, a difficult spot. I have to come up with a plan. I have to work out a plan. And once I have the plan, I'm fine. It's just, just right. the way I work. But if I don't have a plan and I'm, like, I'm at a loss, <laughs> I'm stressed. And so I have to figure it out and I do whatever it takes. You know, how am I going to get through this? What do I need to do? And, you know, figure it all out. Have all my steps figured out. And then I'm relaxed. I knew I have a, a plan to execute and I can execute it and I'll be fine. So that, that's for me, that's helps me get through all that stuff. I just got to figure out the plan and then I'm good. Great. Thank you. Now we come to our final question and I'll, I'll give <laughs> you more, some more, more points. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, 
you and and we can give a bit of time if you want to have a think about this but if each of you could give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be um, on the 14th August 2010 stands the right <laughs> 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 oh that was good very that good, was good. <laughs> well remember that day yes exactly <laughs> oh man I think uh you know, for me, it's hard to say because as I, during my, uh, uh, you know, path towards my goal, it wasn't always a straight path. I made mistakes, of course. You did things that weren't always smart and stuff like that. And as I think about it, like, you know, you know, should I tell myself to fix those things or they helped me make me who I am already? Now, I think it's more the opposite. You should take different paths. You should try different things. So I tell myself, just keep trying whatever you want to try. Don't, you know, don't ever pa pass up an opportunity for something new. Just do it and try it. Learn from it and keep working to go towards any kind of goal you want. But, but don't like, uh, I think get your head down and too worried about this definite path you want to take. I think if opportunities pop up and you find it interesting, go do it. Don't ever stop that. Amazing. Great. Thank you. And Jack, how about you? Or, or do you feel that that bit of advice was, no, that's that was kind of quite I, crucial? I, I, loved my, I loved my time in the military. I had a great career. I loved my two tours in Afghanistan. I, I literally, as I said, I just had one bad day at the office. You know, if I could tell my younger self to join up, I would still tell my younger self to join up. I absolutely loved it. Um, as I said, yeah, just one bad day, but... You know, you move on and you, uh, you you make the most of a bad situation. And that's what I like to think I'm doing. Wow. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Steve Swanson. Thank you, Jack Cummings. It was an absolute pleasure. Much. So, um, yeah, it was wonderful talking to you both. Thank you. Coming up next week, we talk to co-creator of Losing It with Ruby Wax, musician and comedian Judith Owen and veteran and Making Generation R speaker, Stefan van Neerkirk. Also, don't forget we are releasing a remastered episode from Series 1 every Thursday. This week, we hear from Radio 1's Vic Hope and veteran Sean Stocker. Thank you to my co-host, Stuart Harris, and everyone in our production team. This podcast was generously funded by Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, delivered by The Drive Project, supported by Facebook and presented by me, Alice Driver, creator of the Making Generation R campaign. Huge thanks go to Cy Harmer, whose idea lit the torch paper of this podcast, and to you for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed, then please take a look at our webpage or show notes, where you'll be able to find more information on support services. Should you like to listen to any of the veterans' incredible stories, then they are available as part of this podcast series on the Making Generation R website. The Resilient Sessions grew out of the Making Generation R campaign, a project that trains injured veterans from Blesma to tell their stories, so far to over 100,000 people, from the young and vulnerable to frontline services and first responders across the UK. To find out more about Making Generation R and to book a free talk or workshop if you're a school, just Google Making Generation R. If you've enjoyed listening today, then please do subscribe. Give us a five-star review and share it with your family and friends. You never know who it might help. <laughs>